What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We have a very special guest in town. This is the very last edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast of 2019. We made it through 12 issues. We made it through 12 issues. With a lot of writing. So much writing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I really thought this last article that I wrote uh, was going to be the shortest one. Because, you know, it's December. And that never plays out that way. 16 pages later, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So this research review and therefore this podcast is all about low back pain. Did you pick this topic? No, Mike did. This is Mike's topic. Are you going to pick a topic? I guess eventually if I'm given that opportunity. Yeah. I won't put you on the spot now because otherwise the topic's going to be something like <laughs> dolphins. <laughs> if you don't if you don't know that joke, go back to the early days. If you do know that joke, thank you for listening <laughs> for this long. Um, in any event, we're going to do the same thing that we do every month, and that's give you the play-by-play on our research review, just kind of give you an overview of what we wrote about, what we found, and then uh, we encourage you, if you're interested in getting the latest hot takes, um, on the latest science, latest evidence, and our thoughts on certain topics. Sign up for a research review. You can get 50% off using the code RESEARCH. Uh, we're working on getting this uh, thing accredited for CEU, so we'll have some pre- and post-test stuff coming out. We're going to reformat it for 2020, add some more multimedia, but the podcast stuff uh, we're going to share with the public because we think it's important to get the message out. So, Is this going to be our first video one? This is going to be the first one that we have a video element to it, but there's also yeah. for the vlog because hashtag lifestyle, All right. hashtag YouTube algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm trying to be an influencer. Yes. I'm trying to influence people to get off the internet and take control of their own health. Okay. Uh, let's start with you, Dr. Austin Baraki. So we talked about low back pain. Your specific topic, give the listeners at home or viewers at home an overview on what you talked about and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, so um, back pain is obviously a super common issue. It's really a complex topic. We address it at length in our content, at our seminars. All of our coaches and and, uh, and fellow clinicians um, talk about this topic pretty frequently. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on is something specifically that is in like the biomedical realm, things that doctors do in particular with this that's kind of unique because I feel like I have some insight in, in, in that matter that's kind of unique having been trained under that paradigm and having worked with some spine docs and stuff like that. And so the, the topic that I addressed this month was from a paper by Damien and colleagues uh, from last year 
Um, the title of the paper is Magnitude, Response, and Psychological Determinants of Placebo Effects in Chronic Low Back Pain, a Randomized Double-Blinded con Controlled Trial. And what they were specifically looking at was trying to ad address the degree of a placebo response that people get from receiving spinal injections. Okay. Because um, spinal injections are a super commonly offered therapy for all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, also, and then in the public sphere, too, people are like, oh, so you're going to go get an injection? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The and there's a perception like, that it's very potent, that it's going to fix your pain. It's, yeah, that it's like very extremely useful. Yeah, exactly. Like, look, if failing conservative management, right, then uh, you get an injection. Yeah, because it's good. Yeah, it's the and, next step up. And you can do it under like fluoroscopy, which basically means you're looking at it under X-ray, trying to get right to the spot. Right. Exactly. <laughs> because it's one spot. Yeah. The whole thing's problematic. Okay. I'll let you talk about it. I don't want to steal your thunder. Yeah. I mean, that's where that's where this whole thinking comes from. You trace our uh, thought process, our approach, both in the medical world and in the lay public's community as to how back pain works. Um, when we talk about the biomedical model, it's, it's this idea that if there are symptoms, it means something is wrong that needs to be addressed, treated, or fixed, True. or removed uh, entirely in the case of some surgical interventions. Because, conversely, if you flip the logic, if nothing was wrong, you wouldn't have pain. That's the typical way that people think about it, which is not the case. Um, people can have pain for all kinds of, can experience pain for all kinds of complicated reasons that, as we have discussed at length before, are not uh, particularly well correlated with um, what we call pathoanatomic issues, structural, mechanical things, particularly the longer pain has been present. So you're saying that people can have back pain even if they didn't have like a herniated disc or like a torn ligament yes. or like a facet joint injury. Additionally, or they can have pain that is coincidental to the existence of those things, whereas those things may have been not related to the symptom presentation. Right. The typical history uh, on that is like somebody said, oh, I hurt my back doing something. Yeah. Right. It could be anything. And then they received some sort of imaging, uh, in this case, advanced imaging, like an MRI, mm -hmm. and shows that they have a herniated disc. And they're like, I did that. And I herniated a disc. That's why. Yeah. The things and, are inextricably linked in their minds. Yes. Which becomes problematic because then the only way that you can heal from your back pain is by healing the herniated disc. As so you go down this rabbit hole, how do I heal my herniated disc? Yeah. You know, and, and you know, what do I need to do in the interim while I have this disc herniation? And a lot of people think that some things like disc herniations are forever, i.e. like, you know, you hear this commonly just listening to people talk about back pain. They're like, oh, be careful. You know, you only get one spine. It's like back pain gets this very unique, special degree of concern compared to lots of other aches and pains that people get throughout the rest of their body. Sure. Um, without reason for that to be the case. Yeah. Necessarily. Especially, yeah, particularly in the case of like herniations, because there is such a high like uh, uh, rate of them reabsorbing, the yeah. herniation like resolving itself. Yeah. Um, and in addition to the very, mm, well, I'll just say inconclusive data uh, suggesting that uh, it's even related to the pain experience that people have for low back pain. So, for example, the latest data that I'm aware of is that herniated disc, as far as low back pain in isolation, is like 2 to 5% of cases. If you have lower extremity radicular symptoms, that percentage goes up uh, a little bit. But if we're talking about like, oh, you have low back pain, the odds are that it's not related to a herniated disc. Probably not. Probably yeah. not. Okay. Yeah. So, basically, with all this in mind, people frequently will go to their healthcare professional, their doctor, whoever, uh, with complaints of pain, and they may go through this evaluation, may get some imaging, et cetera. And as we said, there's tons of instances where you might take some pictures and you might, you'll, and when you take pictures, particularly with advanced imaging modalities like MR that are very sensitive, you tend to find a lot of things. Yeah. So then the question is, which of these things is related to the patient's symptoms? Because we found five different things on this MRI scan, which one is causing the pain? Which one is the so-called 
pain generator, which right. is like a trigger phrase for me. Um, <laughs> yes. Because I heard that phrase a lot when working under kind of ortho sports medicine uh, rehab uh, uh, clinicians. And they would talk about, we have to identify the pain generator. So under this model, um, not only are people offered spinal injections for therapeutic purposes, meaning to just direct, to actually treat their pain symptoms, but sometimes they're also used in this diagnostic role, which is kind of interesting, the thought process. So the idea being that they can offer you anesthetic injections, like a numbing medication um, uh, to by uh, using fluoroscopy or using x-ray guidance or CT guidance or whatever to inject some of these uh, anesthetic agents into various things that showed up on the MRI. So if they said you had facet joint arthrosis, they will identify the particular facet joints that they think could be causing your pain and they'll inject those joints. And then afterwards they'll say, did that make you feel better? And the patient will say, yes. And they'll say, that must've been your pain generator. Not really the, the most solid uh, a kind of clinical reasoning going on in that thought process, but that's actually the way that this plays out. Sure. And you'll, they'll inject something else and the patient might say, no, that didn't help, that did help, that didn't help, et cetera. So you identify your pain generator supposedly using this technique. Um, and so then further interventions may be offered based on that finding. Right. So something like a radiofrequency ablation might be offered where they go in and they like destroy the nerves because then no pain signals, which yeah, part of the thing, just do don't like, end up getting perceived. You just do these dorsal rhizotomies where you're actually cutting the the nerve yeah. innervation to that segment. And again, all of this is based off of uh, an inaccurate model of pain receptors, pain mm-hmm. signals coming in from the periphery, a lack of differentiation between treating nociception, treating pain, the actual relevance of these findings with respect to the pain experience, and overall ignoring, it seems, the potential for that diagnostic injection, for example, to just manifest as a placebo effect. And the patient's like, yeah, I felt great. Not only the potential placebo effect, there's also potential for kind of like a desirability effect in the sense that if the patient says, yes, that made me feel better, they may already know in their mind, or they may have been told that based on your response to this injection, you may get offered more treatments. And sure, so they yeah. may want more treatments and that might incentivize them to say certain things. So with all that said, I, I'm going to guess that the research shows on this. I haven't read your, your article. Okay. <laughs> I'm being honest. No offense taken. Yeah, no, you know, you're a good guy. Yes. I just haven't read it yet. I'm going to guess the research shows that compared to placebo, there's not a significant benefit to doing the injections. That being said, the overall clinical response rate to these things is probably pretty good. Yeah. So this study, the way it was set up was not actually in a way where they were attempting to compare the response to placebo versus the response to anesthetic. It was kind of an interesting study design. They recruited like 120 people and they ended up putting them through this uh, kind of sequence where they would get injected at the beginning. And then at some point later on, at least a week, usually weeks later, they would come in for a second injection. Groups were randomized to either get placebo, then anesthetic or anesthetic, then placebo or anesthetic and anesthetic. And um, they then wanted to, they also assessed things like uh, uh, group perceived group allocation, which is a fancy way of saying, after they did this, they asked the groups, what group did you think you were in? Which is a really clever way of trying to tease out whether there was some form of unblinding Mm -hmm. that happened because the way they, this was a double blinded trial. So the clinicians, the people who were doing the injections, the nurses who were involved in this and the patients, nobody knew whether you were getting placebo or, or, or anesthetic. Um, and so, um, that also, uh, was useful in the way they analyzed the data later on. And I get into that in the trial. 
or in the in the in the review. They also asked about things like, uh, what's your expect expectation for how much pain uh, sure. improvement you're going to get, and and then analyze the data based on high expectation of benefit, low expectation benefit. Um, they analyzed it based on the change in anxiety about their pain pre to post injection. A bunch of different subgroup, not subgroup, but sub analyses that they did that had some pretty interesting findings that I again discuss in detail in the review. The overall finding um, was that there was a very significant placebo response in this paper. And again, although it was not set up to directly compare placebo versus the lidocaine effect on pain, because the groups were the same people got placebo and anesthetic, they weren't independent groups. um, There was still a a, a, a comparable response between placebo injections and, and, and actual anesthetic, like, you know, the, sure. the, the, what most people might think of as like a lidocaine kind of thing, a numbing agent. They used a similar one, um, a pretty similar response to these things. And then some interesting findings when they broke it down by all those other, uh, kind of sub criteria. So with that said, of course, finding a very substantial placebo response to these sorts of spinal injections, then you step back and you think about how are these things typically used in practice? One is, again, for therapeutic purposes to treat pain. Sure. So that some casts some doubt on the utility there. Sure. And again, and indeed, when you look at the actual uh, uh, randomized controlled trial literature on things like epidural corticosteroid injections or anesthetic injections for uh, uh, for uh, radicular and non-radicular back pain, for spinal stenosis, for non-specific back pain, the evidence is quite slim. Um, there's very small effects in radicular back pain, and then the rest, there's no evidence that it helps. But these things are done all the time oh, yeah. for people. Um, and then the the thing that grinds my ears more. <laughs> Did you say grind your ears? Yes, you that, that uh, I really went in on in this yeah. is the implications of this sort of a finding for the use of diagnostic injections. Um, the idea that if you inject somebody with something and they tell you it feels better, that that is useful diagnostic information. I would suggest that based on this, I would argue that based on this sort of data, um, that if you inject people with placebo, they have a quite substantial report of of, of uh, uh, decreased pain intensity. Sure. That that provides you with no useful diagnostic information. And then if you're to take that steps further and then intervene upon that thing that you injected because you thought it's the pain generator, right. um, that's probably unhelpful. And that's kind of actually how yeah, this data perfect. ends up playing out. And I discussed that in the, in the research review as well. Um, we see this kind of thing a lot though. I mean, I just had an interaction earlier today with uh, somebody in our group who said I had some shoulder pain and I took some Aleve and it got better. So therefore it was inflammatory. Yeah. It was inflamed because right. Aleve treats inflammation. And so if it wasn't inflamed, Aleve wouldn't have helped. It's the same, same kind of thought process, like a diagnostic pill instead of a diagnostic injection. And this thought process, just again, to hammer home, like does not follow. Sure. There are placebo responses to all of this stuff, the ritual of taking a pill, expectations of benefit, things like that. And it doesn't tell you whether this inflammatory or not, um, because the mechanisms of these treatments, particularly when you're consciously aware of receiving them, are not that specific. Yeah, right, right. Right. The only, you know, you could you you can make an argument that if this guy was like put under general anesthesia and given a, a placebo versus an anti-inflammatory drug, but still, I would argue that that's probably not going to be useful either from a diagnostic standpoint or from like a subsequent treatment management standpoint. Right. Yeah, that seems like it could really just put you on a wild goose chase if you're like, oh, I injected this particular area or I did this particular thing, which means that's where my pain was coming from. Right. That's the quote unquote pain generator, and then all of your subsequent like. Uh, ma- uh, management is focused around that, yep. which means that all of the narratives that are being generated are all around that. Yep. And so somebody's going to think if it's like a facet joint, which just by the way, these are the joints that connect like the the 
a vertebra above neighboring it, vertebra together yeah. and they articulate sometimes they're referred to as a zygopophyseal joint when people are really trying to like flex on you um but you know <laughs> hypothetically hypothetically that <laughs> might happen um yeah and so somebody's like i got this you know tricky facet joint and so anytime that they have any sensation of a of a, that's abnormal in their back ah it's my facet joint yeah it's acting up again acting up again yeah yeah yeah, it's the same thought, you know, overly reductionist thought process as it as it pertains to pain that we talk about with literally every other supposed pathoanatomic yep. abnormality, whether it's a, a tight thing, a loose thing, an adhesion thing, a, a, a subluxed thing, all this all this stuff. They're all very overly reductionist explanations for a very complex process. Yep. And um, I liked uh, in some of the other tri- the papers that I cited on this on like the radiofrequency ablation stuff. There's one that was tight that had a title that I liked, like that these trials are demonstrating that treating uh, nociception is not the same as treating pain. Sure. Which I like that as, yeah. as, as an emphasis of the, on differentiating these things. You know, most things in life, Austin, are a little bit more complicated than like, turns out I did this, this is the outcome. <laughs> There's a causal relationship. There. And my experience proves this to be true. Yeah. Because, yes. You can get in trouble. Because there's use. just too many confounders, a lot of things that you don't even know you don't know. Yeah. Particularly in complex biological organisms. Yeah. Like humans. Yeah. Okay. So check it out if you want to see the data, the breakdown, the all the other sub-analyses that I talked about. Yeah. Like, you know, it's funny. When I we started doing these podcasts, like, it was, the initial concern was like, well, we're just giving away, you know, the thing for free in yeah. podcast form. It's like, absolutely not. Like, yeah, this is good for conversation starters. You know, mm-hmm. if you're at parties and you're like, well, I, you know, just listen to this podcast and, you know, this is interesting. Um, yeah, you can start the conversation, but you can't add meat to the conversation. And you certainly can't assert dominance in the conversation <laughs> <laughs> with just, just learning what you're learning here in the podcast form. And it, it's not that we're actively trying to withhold information. It's just that, you know, I wrote, for example, 16 pages. You wrote, you know. Probably something similar. I don't know, yeah. And pages. it's like, we can't do it in 10 minutes. Yeah. Like we, this podcast would be four hours long. I guess, you know, if Joe Rogan's an example. We would just make four hour podcasts, you know. But I think our listenership would tank. So. The idea is, yeah, we want to get you guys uh, aware of the stuff and put it on your radar. But if you really want to learn about it, you're going to have to spend some active time, you know, digging into time it. under tension, <laughs> <laughs> reading the stuff. Yeah. What about you? What did you talk about? Uh, so, yeah, it's still on low back pain, but it's about uh, the relationship between uh, excess adiposity, uh, which is commonly referred to as obesity, and uh, uh, low back pain itself. And uh, the study uh, was titled, Does Changing Weight Change Pain? A Retrospective Data Analysis from a National Multidisciplinary Weight Management Service. Which is a fancy way of saying this is like a weight loss specialty clinic. This is in Dublin, Ireland. And everybody who came into their clinic had a BMI of greater than 35. In fact, the average BMI in this study was 50, which is high. Very high. If you're unfamiliar with body mass index or BMI, it basically takes your uh, weight divided by your the square of your height. Um, and so if you're um, over 30 uh, kilograms per meter squared, that's the units here, then that is you, you receive the diagnosis of obesity, which is actually, you know, there's, certain, there's definitely a stigma in our society about it. And I addressed that a little bit and tried to, uh, you know, I guess not really dance around that stigma, but really just try to destigmatize it in the way I was writing this. And then also just talking about the actual stigma. So again, there's this attitude towards individuals who are carrying excess adipose tissue, that they're lazy, that there's some sort of defect in, with them or, or, you know, and calling people just obese people, they can be uh, uh, not nice. In, yeah. in addition to not really, um, you know, addressing the underlying pathology, because people think, you know, look, there's just a, it's a, uh, overeating and under-exercising. That's what causes this. And it's like, I mean, sure, that's 
part of the uh, development of excess adiposity. It's a reductionist way to explain it. Correct. Just like you know, just like <laughs> you disc pain, you know, you have a disc issue in your back. That's why you have low back pain. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's complicated. It's very complicated. Genetics, environment, socioeconomic status, behavioral stuff, on and on. And so it's interesting, this study, one of the best things that I thought they did is they really tried to hammer home that they were trying to adjust behavioral change in these individuals, try to get them to change their diet. They also did uh, some physical therapy stuff, which I didn't love. Um, I mean, this, it, it's it was a, supposedly like a multidisciplinary, like weight management sort of a clinic setup. Yes. Is that accurate? Yeah. So you had a doctor, you had a, a physiotherapist or physical therapist in the States. Um, you had a, a specialist dietitian, specialized yeah. nurses, all with obesity training, presumably. Yeah. Um, and effectively, these people had to um, come into the clinic, do an initial assessment. And in that initial assessment, they got all of their, you know, labs and they got all of their anthropometric measurements. So height, weight, you know, uh, 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 waist circumference, et cetera, et cetera, body fat testing. Um, and then they also did these functional uh, physical activity uh, like tests. So for instance, the timed up and go test, which mm-hmm. and the uh, sit to stand by, for a set of five, these are all tests that we do to assess somebody's functional capacity. Like, are they able to like get around on their own? Right. You can also use these for sarcopenia type yeah. like functional scores. So sarcopenia is a loss of muscle mass. And if you score like poorly on these tests, you might not have an adequate amount of muscle mass to move your butt around the house, which is yeah. problematic. In any event, uh, so they did this initial screening and then every month they had at least one meeting, either group or one-on-one meeting with one of these professionals um, to sort of address behavioral change stuff, get, try to get them to change their diet, engage in physical therapy, and also they received um, psychological counseling on various issues. Here's the problems. Here's right, some problems. problems with this paper. I know you have several. <laughs> I have several problems. Problem number one is it's hard, it, just off the bat, it's going to be hard to um, really hang your hat on the results from this particular study, uh, like generalize it to other individuals. One, because the BMI was so high in this paper. The average person participating in the study, their BMI was 50, yeah. which is very high. The average BMI in the United States is like 28 or something like that. So um, that being said, you know, I think the if we're trying to figure out does losing weight help with low back pain, you know, I, I feel pretty comfortable about that. But the actual methods of weight loss in yeah. here and, and and exercise and you could also argue that if you wanted to as like an initial study like if you want to set yourself up to demonstrate an effect if there was indeed one present sure. then you might want to start with people whose bmis are that high to set yourself up to sure hey I, if, if there is one i'll find it and I'll then i can it. check in the lower weight people yeah you might miss it otherwise i would agree with that except for there's no control yeah <laughs> like they didn't have people who did not receive dietary counseling. They didn't have people who didn't receive the physical therapy counseling. They didn't have people um, who they basically tried to do like a within study control group. Like if you didn't lose weight, you're the control. Yeah. It's like, well, you still got these counseling though. Yeah. And you know, you, that's, there's a lot of confounders there. Yeah. yeah. So even just it, having somebody listen to you can reduce pain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> stuff, stuff. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, just from a background perspective, the reason that we think that obesity might be related to low back pain, mm-hmm. there are a handful of different arguments. The three major ones. One is this wear and tear argument. It's just more weight, more wear and tear. Which, on the one hand, can like make sense if you just think about it, quote unquote, logically. Right. <laughs> You're more weight uh, on the joints, puts more pressure on the joints, more stress on the joints, and they're just not, uh, you know, developed or evolved or you know, what made to handle that sort of stress. In fact, when you look at um, the obesity guidelines right now, the section written on osteoarthritis quotes exactly that. Like, hey, if you're 
uh, carrying too much adipose tissue and too much body weight, you're putting, you know, two and three X multiples uh, body weight worth of stress on the knees. Yes. So just from that, like surface level, you're like, hmm, makes sense. Yes. Except for when you realize that even non-weight bearing joints in obese individuals or people who are carrying too much adipose tissue, they result, they report high uh, incidences of pain. So the hands, for example. There's higher hand OA rates than hip. Correct. Yes. For example, in some of these patients. So it kind of speaks to that, you know, even if there is this biomechanical like element to obesity, uh, you know, generating either osteoarthritis or just joint pain in general, that it's not the whole story. And, And I would argue is a smaller piece of the pie than what most clinicians attribute it to. The second part of this, which is another like biomechanical cause is uh, particularly with respect to low back pain is this obesity induced lordosis. So lordosis being the convex curvature of the lumbar and uh, cervical spines. Um, And in particular in low back pain, there's this thought that if you have this excessive lordosis. Not unlike what a pregnant woman might experience as her. The of higher amounts of pain. Yeah. Except for there's no data to support that. And when I say no data, I, I'm very careful to like speak on this because you're looking at like, what is a normal lordotic curve? Mm-hmm. And then what is the norm the range? And what is abnormal? And does this reliably correlate to pain? We don't have the data, even though we do have some data suggesting that people with uh, excess adiposity or excess adipose tissue do have slightly greater curves. Although we have other data that suggest they don't at all. There are lots of Instagram people who have like the side-by-side green checkbox red X with lordosis though. Isn't that uh, yeah. good enough for it? Turns out not peer reviewed, <laughs> not rigorously performed yeah. science there. Yeah. So um, that's kind of like six in one bucket and that half dozen in the other. Yeah. We don't really have data showing that reliably that uh, people with excess adiposity have greater degrees of lordosis. And even if they did, that that necessarily leads to more uh, higher prevalence of low back pain. So then that brings us to the third. Can I interject before oh, yeah, right. to harp on something? Yeah, another, harp on some another, stuff. Another trigger phrase here with the wear and tear deal. Oh, Just all this mechanical stuff in general. Sure. I think it's hugely par- problematic because, again, to the general public who has a relatively poor understanding of this stuff, on a superficial level, it seems to, quote unquote, make sense. Sure. Right? And I don't disagree that it seems to make sense. But there are so many problems with it. Uh, in particular, uh, because if we are trying to get these individuals training more, oh sure, yeah, right. And uh, we talked about this in the Sarcopenia podcast that just came out with the curbsiders, where you know if you have somebody who has pain and you're trying to get them to do, you know, say you want to get them to meet the physical activity guidelines that suggest they need to do a bunch of aerobic activity, a bunch of uh, uh, resistance uh, activities, and you're telling them you have pain because of wear and tear, because of weight, yeah. but also two days a week I want you to go and I want you to lift weights. Right, and they're like, there is it, it cannot make sense to the individual, and they're not going to buy into that plan. They're not going to adhere to that plan. They're not going to engage in their behavior. They're going to think you're an idiot because you didn't even put that together. If it's wear and tear, why would I go put more weight on my body? When we have clear evidence that strength training for individuals with osteoarthritis, for yeah. example, chronic, you know, they, do better. Uh, they, they yeah, they do better. They, um, uh, they have better outcomes in general, reduced rates of progressing to surgery, things like that, which then that finding should make you question the original premise exactly. that it's a weight problem when or just like strength exactly exactly yeah. uh, w- uh, mechanical mechanical loading because mechanical loading through strength training seems to improve their outcomes yeah. so the narratives need to make sense um uh that they also need to be medically accurate and, <laughs> right. and this is kind of where we're coming from on this so stop telling people uh that it's just a you know a wear and tear problem because the number of times i've heard 
doctors tell patients, you know, if you lose one pound of weight, it's four pounds off your knee. Well, they say that all the time. And it's like, okay, but I also want you to go and I want you to squat, <laughs> you know, even a 45 pound bar. But they're like, wait, that's way more than four pounds that, that I'm putting on my knees. Do I want to really want to do that? Well, the, the thing just to reiterate. So just and to bear it to simplify people with osteoarthritis, which is a com a big umbrella term relating to joint pain that's thought to be due to some degenerative process. People with osteoarthritis do who exercise the most, who are the most physically active, do the best, but just as a general rule mm -hmm. uh, compared to people who are very sedentary and who don't exercise, who are not physically active. And so Which itself conflicts. <laughs> if, again, so again, if you're like, this is wear and tear, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> so that should be like question, you know, you should start questioning that stuff. So, all right, moving on to the third thing. So the, the first two narratives are all both biomechanically related. The third narrative, uh, third idea about how obesity may relate to uh joint pain and in particular low back pain is more this metabolic sort of pathway. The idea that the adipose tissue itself, when in present at excess levels, actually creates a physiologic internal milieu, to quote uh, Walter Cannon and mm -hmm. Claude Bernard, pour one out for my physiology homies, yeah. um, that is uh, pro-inflammatory. And so not to get too deep in the weeds, because we do this in the paper, it's, again, it's a good way to start the conversation, but to get to the meat of the conversation, you need to read the paper. Um, the adipose tissue is not like this inert, you know, tissue that's just hanging around, just waiting to be burned or waiting yeah. to store more, more, more fat. Rather, it is metabolically active. It is putting out cytokines, which since they're coming from the adipose tissue are termed adipokines that can act locally. They have biological function locally on other adipose tissue, but also remotely on other tissues, making other tissues secrete, release. So they're like hormones. Correct. That's an easy way for people. Obviously. They're doing things if they know what hormones are. Yeah. yeah. So in any event, adipose tissue is uh, doing things biologically, and it ultimately shifts the uh, balance between pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines in favor of these pro-inflammatory cytokines. And there's multiple, like, overwhelming data like showing that this happens and there is less data however showing that people with uh low back pain in this particular case have elevated markers of these pro-inflammatory hormones who are also obese mm -hmm. so we're making this kind of leap from like well if you have uh excess adipose tissue we know that these markers go up but we don't necessarily know that those markers are any higher in uh, uh, obese individuals with low back pain because that hasn't actually been investigated. Sure. But we do have evidence that people in this situation with obesity, kind of generalized systemic inflammation as a result of the obesity, have higher rates of pain. Yes. In general. Yes. It sensitizes and, things. And we also have data showing that people with uh, who are obese who lose weight tend to ha have improved outcomes in low back pain. Mm -hmm. However, the best data we have on this, which is kind of similar to the first point you brought up with, was in people who've had bariatric procedures. Yeah. So it, it's really hard to get people to lose weight and keep it off, <laughs> which, uh, you know, so kudos to this, this study. They actually were able to, to do that, and they followed these people up for on average of eight, eight, uh, eight months, I think, was the average follow-up, but I think it went out to a year and a half. Um, but the bariatric procedures, so lap band, ruin Y, any other sort of, you know, gastric bypass sort of surgery that ultimately gets people to lose weight and has really good success. Average weight loss of 20 years, is about 20% of body weight, for example. Um, those people who had con uh, low back pain when they came in for the procedure 
uh, on average, it resolved. Mm-hmm. Like it, they have marked improvements um, in low back pain, and uh, so it's kind of one of these. Hmm, well, maybe there's something something to this. But but uh, overall, the data we just don't have a lot of data sets where people have low back pain with obesity, and then they're being studied in with, a controlled fashion, in a controlled way, yeah. with weight loss. So we have mechanistic data. You know, all, uh, a lot of it, and then we have some sort of experimental evidence, cohort stuff. It sounds like, yeah, yeah. but we don't really have these randomized controlled trials yeah. showing strong outcomes. So anyway, looked at this study. This study uh, took um, all the, these patients. They started out with 900 like potential patients that were recruited from like 2011 to 2015, and they ended up only studying like 400 of them. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem number one: only like 150 of them lost weight. So already you were restricting our analysis of like, hey, how does weight loss in people with obesity and yeah. low back pain affect low back pain? Well, now our sample's even smaller. Yeah. Um, yeah. In general, the people who lost weight had an improvement in their low back pain. So cut to the chase. The most interesting thing was the people who gained weight tended to do much worse, meaning they had higher uh, ratings of severity of their low back pain. Their back pain on average didn't resolve. Their knee pain on average got worse and mm-hmm. didn't resolve mm-hmm. compared to the people who lost weight, which again, kind of was like this, oh, maybe there's this relationships even stronger. I have multiple problems with this study, which I get into and I won't bore you guys with, um, but I would have I would have rather had them check these functional tests at the end. I would have rather them have the uh, be randomized in a way and then have a, a straight up control yeah, group. Yeah, control group would be nice to, to um, account for just regression to the mean of pain symptoms, yep. i.e. when pain symptoms are at their worst, statistically, they're most likely to yep. get better later on. Yep. So it's hard to tell if it's due to the weight loss or not. But And I would have had them check the inflammatory adipokines as well because I thought that would have been an interesting way to stratify yeah you know like so so, because again if the average BMI was 50 like I would expect the people with the BMI of 50 to have markers that are substantially different from the people with the BMI of 30 or 35 Mm -hmm. for example sure Um, so it would have been nice to add more meat to that data set but in any event we go deep on this I think the take home from this is if you have low back pain and you have excess adipose tissue because yeah. of the low back pain, you're going to need to change your training, yeah. right? And then that seems like a great time to address the excess adipose tissue. Um, so, Well, there are a couple other like corollaries to this because we sometimes have rehab clients or people who post in our groups or come to us and they have an ache or a pain or they're injured and they ask us if they should be eating more or if they should be in a calorie surplus to help themselves, quote unquote, heal from whatever happened. And the overwhelming majority of the time, our answer is no. Unless you're, unless you just had like a super major invasive surgical procedure, your nutritional needs are likely unchanged. And if you're carrying excess body fat, you could probably afford to decrease that. Um, again, because given how we think that body fat influences pain sensitivity yeah. in this sort of a situation. So would not recommend people aggressively or even casually <laughs> gain weight in these sorts of situations. Sure. Um, and and also if you're in a situation where you're aggressively gaining weight and gaining body fat tissue, uh, consider how that may be implicated in, you know, should you develop aches and pains in the future and, and that one way to address that is likely to reduce the, the body fat. Yeah. Yep. I think, uh, uh, the thought is, yeah, but I heard that, you know, your body is using more energy when it's recovering. Yeah. I mean, yeah, from a burn, from a really a large burn or surgery, <laughs> huge infection. But just because, you know, you have a, a, a knee pain or, or a low back pain, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're probably not consuming, you know, actually using any more calories, probably less if you're less active, for example. Yeah, exactly. And then we know that there's probably there's, there's a connection between excess adiposity and the pathogenesis of you actually 
you know, having pain. Yep. So we would probably uh, address that during times where strength performance is probably not at the top of your list. So if you're trying to rehab from an injury, it, then you're not entering a strength competition yeah. <laughs> in any in the in the short term, and so it'd not be the time to be gaining weight. <laughs> correct. Yeah, good time to address the adiposity. Now we're going to hear from the rest of our barbell medicine research review crew, Dr. Derek Miles and Dr. Michael Reddy. Let's get to them. My name is Derek Miles. I'm a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Health. I'm also a part of the pain and rehab team at Barbell Medicine. All right. So this is the December edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. This is all about low back pain. And Dr. Derek Miles took us on an adventure through spondylolysis. Now, just to give the listeners at home a kind of brief overview of what most clinicians, particularly uh, those who um, don't specialize in either uh, orthopedics or sports medicine or uh, really dig into this, we always kind of confuse and conflate these three different spondies that we remember from either medical school or or other training. And uh, so that's spondylitis, uh, spondylolysis, which is what you talked about, and spondylolisthesis. Uh, can you just give a brief overview of uh, these three conditions and kind of differentiate them so we can just talk about spondylolysis? Yeah, and some of this actually gets into the actual article itself and how we're going to define what we're considering to be something that would be problematic on imaging. So spondylolysis is a stress fracture of the pars interarticularis, or we'll just refer to it as the pars from here on out. Um, it basically is part of the posterior spine. And spondylolisthesis is when there is actual movement of one vertebrae on the other. Um, most of the time when we hear it talked about, it's an anterior listhesis where one vertebrae is moving anteriorly on another and there's different grading scales of that and then spondylitis um, it kind of gets into what we're going to call a stress reaction and that's some of the gist of where this article ended up going was at what point do we think something is or should be classified as being problematic yeah uh most commonly particularly in young men um we think about ankylosing spondylitis um but you're right. It's an inflammatory condition and, and, and uh, which is ultimately a stress reaction. Um, in any event, what would be like the most common reason for somebody to wind up with a diagnosis of spondylolysis, which is, is what your article kind of focused on? How would somebody, you know, your standard story of somebody coming uh, into the clinic and ending up with this uh, diagnosis? Um, likely it would be overutilization of imaging would be the easiest way to get there. But from a mechanism of what would bring you into clinic in the first place, we tend to be more suspicious of some type of spondylolysis being present on imaging in athletes who participate in sports that are predicated upon a lot of extension or a lot of rotation. So this study in particular, um, where you'll hear it referenced is in gymnasts. And uh, this study really talked about baseball players having a higher rate than normal. Yep. So, I mean, I just played a round of golf this morning. I assume that uh, I now have spondylolysis. Well, according to the definition of these authors, it, it could be likely because they include in a stress reaction, which, you know, 
anytime we have any type of training stimulus, we're going to have a stress reaction. It just depends on what we're going to call good, bad, or where we're going to draw that line between a normal finding or a pathological finding. And as we've seen with pretty much every other low back diagnosis, the answer is there's typically a high base rate of things that we consider to be abnormal in the normal population. And it's all stimulus dependent on what we've adapted to, or uh, in the instance of spondylolysis, likely what sport we're playing. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, one of the ways that I cope with not being good at a sport is by trying to learn as much as possible about it. If you were to image somebody directly after a round, uh, you might pick up, you know, this uh, via artifact, meaning that you see a quote unquote stress reaction, um, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just, that's what you just did. And part of the adaptive process, um, you know, may actually, uh, result in, in this f- a finding an artifact finding on, on imaging. Is that what they see in other sports? Well, we don't really have those studies is the problem related to it is pretty much all the evidence puts the cart before the horse and says that we found this on imaging. It has to be a correlate to symptoms instead of doing things like looking at base rates. And your ideal study would be, you know, grab a high school female volleyball team and take some images two weeks into the start of their season. Or the same thing if you could do with at the start of a baseball season and see what popped out. Because in the studies that really look at that, and there are some related to cricket, because cricket fast bowlers are actually one of the cohorts where we see a high level of spawning. And they, and all the evidence from that is essentially said there is no real relationship between imaging and presentation of symptoms. Yeah, and that's similar to a lot of other um, diagnostic uh, imaging results that we see, and its correlation with low back pain. So, for example, the prevalence uh, or incidence of of finding um, a herniated disc or bulging disc on imaging, and then just uh, low back pain. So, we've kind of already you know, uh, inoculated our listenership here that, you know, just because somebody has a herniated disc or multiple disc herniations doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily have low back pain. Um, low back pain again is only associated with a a herniated disc about two to 5% of the time. Are you suggesting that low back pain from, um, spondylolysis, uh, has a similar sort of relationship, meaning that we would likely see a, a pretty high base rate in asymptomatic individuals. And that just because somebody has spondy doesn't mean that they're going to have back pain. I think if we're going to use the criteria that these authors used to include stress reaction, that's absolutely the case. Um, strictly because once again, if we have stress to the system, you're going to have some type of reaction and there is a poor correlation. And Part of the problem, even with this diagnosis is one, it's a big, scary word. And two, the colloquial interpretation of it is I broke my back and that doesn't really build a lot of resiliency into athletes or even parents when it comes to trying to get their kid back to sport. And this is one of those instances where there are a few studies that we can kind of hang our hat on prognostically. There was one by uh, Butler that they did a 45-year follow-up study on individuals with spondy and found that compared to the normal population, there was no difference in symptomology of low back pain. And, you know, it's pretty rare we get something with even a 10-year follow-up, much less 45. So, so if we were trying to figure out if people with spondylolysis uh, uh, have a increased, uh, you know, incidence of low back pain over their lifetime. So, like, is this a risk factor? That study would suggest mm, no, it's not. Um, 
So then where do you, I don't know, where do you kind of draw the line? Like as far as do, you know, where people need imaging to address this, if at all? Well, it's an interesting paradox. If you look at the Choose Wisely campaign and all of the recommendations we have against imaging out of the gate, and it doesn't really improve outcomes. But if you look at where the criteria exist for performing imaging, suspicion of fracture is among that reason for getting early imaging. So I think one, more than anything, we need more evidence to really define what is the base rate of these stress reactions. And really out of this, in the study itself, out of the 1,025 individuals who they looked at, they did advanced imaging on 89.8% of them. And Jeez. you're talking, yeah. So even if you look at that from a sheer cost analysis, all of the evidence says that even if you are trying to figure out if there's a spondylolisthesis, a simple x-ray will more than yield the diagnostic information you need out of it. And when we're ordering all these additional spec MRI, CT, it's not really doing anything for us prognostically. It's additional cost incurred to patient and the probability of finding some type of incidental OMA is going through the roof. Sure. In addition to the amount of millisieverts that the people yeah. are exposed to, ionizing radiation generally being a bad thing to expose yourself to at high doses repeatedly, uh, particularly if it doesn't change management, which brings me to my next question. So let's say that you have a you know 15-year-old uh, male presents to your physical therapy clinic because he's had low back pain, he's a baseball player, and he was subjected to advanced imaging that found that he had a uh, spondy. Do you do anything different with that patient versus the same patient who doesn't have the diagnosis of spondy but still has, has had this on and off again, low back pain, um, and plays a rotational sport? So the easy answer is no, but in school, you're a lot of physical therapists and rehab specialists are taught um, if you're suspicious of a spondy, you're not going to work someone into extension. And you may have that caveat in place, but if your sport's predicated upon extension, at some point I have to reintroduce it. So if you're symptom free with extension, then, then we're going to start working there. Now, if you're having some symptoms into it, then we're going to work around, but it comes down to there are thousands of things we can work on to develop athletic principles that aren't going to work that athlete into their symptomology. And if our goal is to keep that athlete in shape and, and make them more resilient, I need to be finding those ways of modifying their activity instead of just telling them you broke your back, you need to go rest for 16 weeks. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Um, I guess the, the follow-up to that is if that patient presented to you with on again, off again, low back pain, they play a rotational sport, for example, and you start getting suspicious of spondy, uh, or, or maybe when would you start getting suspicious of spondy at, at, during their rehabilitation uh, program, if at all? Well, if you look at it, your physical exam, it doesn't really yield much. And a lot of it does come down to the sport you play. And, and if it was something that was on again, off again, still, even if there are no ridiculous symptoms, it's not going to change management really because there was one study where they uh, did a meta-analysis looking at surgery versus non-surgical outcomes. And part of the rationale they gave for opting for surgery is athletes wanted to get back to sport faster. And, but what they found in the overall analysis was the average athlete who didn't undergo surgery returned in 5.6 months. And those with surgery were 6.5. 
So even if the rationale was to get back to sport faster, they ended up getting there slower. Um, right. And then out of that 90% and 92% out of both groups ended up returning to sport. So do we really need to have these like overly involved interventions or should it be much more, let's start with the basics activity management. And, you know, I think one thing you can take from this study is the drama I normally beat on about staying away from being overly specialized. And if it comes down to where we see completely different rates of spondylolysis on imaging, according to the sport you're playing, then, you know, it, I think it could also build the case that there should be some multiple sports in there because it, as much as I would say, there's not a direct relationship between having spondylolysis and low back pain, certain things we probably just don't want to push in further and further into the, what is normal side of things. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think this is, especially in youth, you know, where, where this tends to get diagnosed uh, quite often, it, it speaks to the meat of your paper and that we don't really have base rates of spondylolysis in uh, a bunch of different sports and just general population. Um, so we, we just don't know that number uh, at, at a granular level. But I guess if you, if you did start seeing more and more cases in, in particular sports, then you could make an argument for playing many different sports instead of spending all of your practice time, all of your training time going after one sport, uh, when you're, when you're younger, because more hours spent practicing tends to give you more hours exposed to that sort of, you know, uh, uh stress that you might not be able to tolerate, um, until you're way, way further, uh, developed as an athlete. Does that kind of jive with, with what you're, what you're putting down? Yeah. Yeah. I can get down with that. Um, if you look at it, it, what was interesting about this study that I think you can really get into the minutia of parsing out is amongst female athletes, the, one of the highest rates was in band athletes. And I just have trouble imagining that a flute player has the same rate of spondy as a percussion player. And so, you know, there's probably a, even a little bit more nuance into this. So <laughs> I'm just saying when you're making those, those, those dynamic movements with the tuba, uh, or like that big bass drum, I don't know, man, that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty athletic move. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's certainly resistance training. It's you, yes, yes, yes. you have a, you have a very sufficient external load going through you at that point. La- last thing for the, for the, uh, people listening at home, especially if they have kids who maybe be, have been diagnosed with spondy, what's the uh, what's the take home message here about this diagnosis, and as far as what you should be doing uh, management wise? Management wise, first line of defense is activity modification. We likely shouldn't be trying to push through any type of sport, but that doesn't mean we can't reduce the load of competition and even reduce the load maybe of practice participation. But there are still plenty of athletic principles that we can work on developing while the person is going through rehab. The other big take home out of it is try not to get worked up over this diagnosis, because this certainly is one that can have a like strong connotation or negative connotation to it. And there is a high prevalence of these adaptations. And the more we start getting inclusive in our definition of calling things like stress reactions, spondylolysis, it's, it creates a whole different set of problems for our athletes. Very good. Derek, thank you so much for your time. Yes, sir. Hey, I'm Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. 
I'm also a barbell medicine pain and rehab clinician. We are back with the December edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. It is all about low back pain. We're here with Dr. Michael Ray talking about the one exercise to rule them all for low back pain rehab. But let's back up. Sorry, I had to do that. Uh, where does this idea even come from that there would be one exercise or one group of exercises to uh, uh, improve low back pain? I think that's a great question, and I don't know that I have a good answer to that. Um, my hypothesis would be that we have a lot of continuing ed companies out there who have laid claim to a lot of different ways to uh, treat low back pain, and subsequent to that, uh, a lot of times we can get improvement just by doing something, which is better than nothing. And because of that success, it gets assigned to some trademark methodology and then it just kind of catches on like wildfire from there. Yeah, I think, you know, the overarching theme that we should probably have in our mind about low back pain is that there's a natural course for this thing, that it's going to resolve given a certain amount of time and that anything that you can do to shorten that time would likely be useful. Now, whether or not that's uniquely useful needs to be tested against other things and against the natural you know, course of the low back pain itself. So those are the kind of studies that you'd actually like to look for. Um, so what sort of exercises did you see most commonly when you kind of did your, your research review uh, on this particular topic? Yeah, so this one's um, interesting, like to, uh, to back up just a little bit to your point on natural history, like we do see good reduction in pain-based symptoms and improvement in function and regression of disability in the initial six weeks of onset. But then we also have pretty readily identifiable evidence that there's a resurgence of symptoms. Uh, for some participants, if I recall correctly, it's like 65% up to a year after onset. And then I think it's Sylvia uh, et al. that found a reoccurrence rate of about 33% after an initial onset of low back pain. So like we know that it does have a natural history to it, but then it also can come back and have repeated flare-ups throughout life. And there's, there seems to be a subset of the population that develops what we have coined uh, chronic nonspecific low back pain. And so that's what this whole month's review is about, is looking at people who are being classified with chronic nonspecific low back pain, uh, what exercises, if any, are demonstrated to be uh, more effective than others. Um, and just for like, uh, uh, audience sake, like when, when they label something chronic, they're labeling it as lasting greater than 12 weeks, uh, which we could certainly debate the utility of those terms. And then nonspecific, uh, you know, I've personally transitioned more to saying things like multifactorial, but in this case, it just means there's not an underlying pathophysiological pathoanatomical issue we should be concerned with. Yeah. I mean, I think if you polled a bunch of uh, doctors who had completed their medical training and are working in sort of a primary care setting or even a sports medicine setting, so they've had some advanced training or uh, even still like some an orthopedic uh, setting where they have, uh, you know, this is some of the stuff that they end up focusing on. Um, if you ask them, you know, what sort of exercises are good uh, to do when I have, a, you know, acute low back pain, um, what, what's going to make me feel better? The likely answers you're going to get from these folks are things like, you know, gentle cat camels, you know, this extension 
and flexion through a, a range of motion that uh, you can tolerate. Maybe planks. Uh, you might get some people who think they're woke to say stuff like dead bugs or, you know, all of this, this sort of stuff that we see on the Instagrams. Um, when you look at the actual literature, do you see like common exercises that are touted as being, uh, you know, uniquely effective over and over again, or is it kind of a hodgepodge of different stuff? Man, it's unfortunately a wash. Like going into this, I wish, and I kind of had my own bias having looked at this research previously before this uh, network meta analysis. I was hoping to see something kind of come forward as like the most effective thing we should be doing with our patients with chronic nonspecific low back pain, but it just doesn't really turn out to be that case. Like um, to give everyone an idea, they looked at uh, resistance exercises, which uh, I pulled randomly a couple of the articles that were assessing resistance. And like uh, we could certainly debate uh, what is resistance outside of some external force, which may have just been gravity, um, which maybe is sufficient for some people as a starting point. But I think at barbell medicine, our bias would be a little bit more of like progressive overload over time, uh, you know, as resistance training. But so that was one uh, subset of exercise. They looked at stabilization and motor control exercises, which I'm just going to leave that alone. I'm not going to touch the rabbit hole that is something called motor control Pilates, yoga, they looked at McKinsey, which I know a lot of people are big fans of, uh, flexion-based exercises, aerobic exercise, water-based exercise, stretching, um, and then like multimodal uh, types of exercise and so multiple things done at once. So if you're not familiar with a meta-analysis versus a network meta-analysis, a meta-analysis tends to look at the same intervention across randomized controlled trials for a particular effect on a particular population and what are the outcomes. A network meta-analysis allows you to pull various interventions at once and look at the overall effect on an outcome. And then it typically lets you do kind of a ranking system of what's more effective versus least effective. So they took, they did both a pairwise meta-analysis and then they did a network meta-analysis as well. And they compared either exercise to other exercises or they compared exercise to a true control where nothing was done. But they also compared exercise to uh, therapists' hands-on treatment, which could be manual therapy, joint manipulations, passive modalities, massage or acupuncture. And then they also compared it towards therapists' hands-off, which could be just general practitioner management, education, or psychological interventions. And so that's, I think, the like if I were to distill this down to a one major take-home point overall after looking at, I think there were 89 included studies in total, is active treatment should be one of our choices of treatments, um, if not the choice coupled with education for people dealing with chronic nonspecific low back pain. It superseded true control, therapist hands-on, and therapist hands-off almost every single time. Yeah, that's not surprising. I mean, the study that I uh, reviewed um, was talking about weight loss and its effect uh, on low back pain, in addition to like obesity's general um, uh, sort of effect on low back pain uh, incidents, and uh, and actually the intervention arm of this study, they the physical uh, therapy aspect of it, they did a lot of these motor control exercises, um, which sent me down the rabbit hole of like, what is this? What is oh, the God. evidence for it? And like, <laughs> oh, oh yes, oh yes. So just briefly at home. Uh, motor control exercises, which is commonly abbreviated MCE, these are effectively like getting the person to be able to feel uh, the certain deep spinal muscles, deep 
uh, trunk muscles, quote unquote, activate or turn on. So like your transversus abdominis, yep. your multifidus, etc. Uh, and so this would like barely qualify for any sort of like resistance training or even like a, a manual resistance uh, sort of uh, training or um, body weight, you know, sort of exercise. It would barely qualify for that. And it's funny because the actual like Cochrane review on MCE on motor control exercises suggests that it's like, okay, it's better than doing like nothing, right. you know, not having an active intervention, but yeah, your study is more powerful as, as far as it, com it compares this, you know, MCE to other sort of things. And, and it, it looks like, yeah, like doing something active is better than not doing anything, which is like. Uh, duh. Duh. Right. <laughs> but, but as far as far as like ferreting out you know which type of exercise is better than another it doesn't seem like they found a, a clear-cut uh, winner which i'm sure derek is disappointed because i, I assume that he was just going to say the nordic hamstring curl was going to be the winner right <laughs> that, that solves all of the world's problems right there <laughs> Right. Uh, but would it be fair to say that the, the evidence just isn't there yet to suggest there's one clear cut winner over another? I don't, I don't know that we like, cause the common like, uh, ending to these types of articles is like, Oh, we need more research, right? Like there, we just got to sure. keep looking into this. And it's to give like an example, because we're talking about stabilization and motor control exercises. That was by far the most researched exercise intervention at 39 studies with 1,062 participants, whereas resistance training was only uh, 12 studies with 472 participants. And McKinsey had seven studies with 114 participants. So like we have, I mean, it included 89 studies. We have a large amount of data on this topic. Um, I want to say total uh, participants was 5,578. So I don't know that if we just keep looking into this, we're going to find something new. Now, I will say that there are some issues with this meta, uh, network meta-analysis because there was a high risk of bias in at least one category for almost all studies. Only about seven studies actually demonstrated low risk of bias. There is huge heterogeneity in reporting of dosage, so like frequency, intensity, time, and duration. It just doesn't get well reported. So like when we look at this, we're like, oh, I need to generalize these findings out to, uh, you know, uh, low back pain patients. I think it's tough to do. And even the authors say, you know, like, yes, active treatment seems to be the choice to do, but which mode of exercise is better than the other? We, it's just shrug emoji. We have no idea. Now, what I did think was interesting is they go on to say that McKinsey and stretching were demonstrated as some of the least effective interventions for chronic nonspecific low back pain. Yeah. And those are commonly touted as like, no, this is what you do first. Right, right. That those gentle cat camel type things or and variations thereof kind of delve into the McKinsey method, although there's a, you know, a, 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 I'm reticent to call it a proprietary series of exercises, but, right. uh, you know, if you got a name, <laughs> it kind of is. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it'd be cool to see stuff, you know, where people were like actually working with a barbell more often, you know, um, it, my, my hypothesis is that if you took people with acute, you know, low back pain and you had a group of them do deadlift or partial range of motion deadlifts or something like that, uh, and you compared them to other folks not doing anything, um, that the people doing the resistance training would have better outcomes, but would they have better outcomes compared to, you know, people doing machine-based exercises? I, you know, I don't know. I think that level yeah. of, yeah. So that level of granularity is not something that, that I think 
you can you'd be able to to really determine without a really like you know adequately powered you know long lasting study that's well well controlled and even then i think you're going to see similar results to what we see in actual like resistance training studies where there's a heterogeneity in the response of individuals to a given intervention meaning some people respond to it some people don't you know and then there's shades of gray in between so th- it yeah. seems like this is following a, a similar course based on the existing evidence. And I think a lot of it just like um, when I think about this stuff, I think about what is a person's goals, what level of enjoyment do they derive from physical activity, uh, which is going to lead to likelihood of adherence. So like if you came in as a chronic nonspecific low back pain patient and you had no intentions in the future after you left my clinic of doing barbell-based resistance training, you hated it, wanted no part of it. And that's probably not going to be the most ideal choice of helping you get through this process. So I think that like uh, individual variation from person to person about their goals and adherence and so on and so forth is going to it's going to make it complicated to find one mode of exercise that we should be doing with uh, these patients. Yep. So final take home for the listeners at home. Yeah, and they happen to mostly be barbell training. Uh, just given our little corner of the internet here. Yeah. I've got I've got low back pain. It just happened yesterday while I was lifting. What do? Yeah. I think um, Foster et al. does a great job talking about this. Like, A, it's highly unlikely there's some underlying pathophysiological, pathoanatomical problem that needs to be diagnosed and directly treated. It Symptoms are going to improve with time. You should remain as active as possible to tolerance. If you're a BBM follower, that means there's a high probability that you do resistance training purposefully in the gym. Don't feel as though that just because we say you have to be active, that means you have to go in and hit your top set of, you know, top single at RP8 that day. Maybe we do just five reps at a top set uh, for RP6. It's still remaining active. Maybe remaining active just meant you were able to get up, put your clothes on, do your activities a day, living good at work. You were still active. So avoid bed rest is kind of the key here. Um, be patient with the process. And then I also think it's important because I've seen this a lot on Facebook in our group, especially is this was done on uh, patients with or without leg symptoms. So just because you have ridiculous symptoms, that doesn't necessarily mean anything differently needs to be done. It may change our, our timeline a little bit. But I think people tend to freak out a little bit when they do have those leg symptoms. And they think, well, this means something seriously is wrong with me. And I need intervention. And that doesn't uh, seem to be the case in the majority of cases. Yeah, I like a little tingle because, to be honest, it makes the weights feel lighter because you can't feel them. Right. So it doesn't matter then. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm not, I don't want to minimize anybody who's got you know who's dealing with this and it's it's causing them a lot of problems. But um, yeah, that our general sort of initial management is you know just because you have pain doesn't necessarily mean you need to do anything differently. Um, if you're afraid to go in and do the prescribed work for your program, then yeah, backing off the RPE, changing the rep range or potentially both, uh, and then maybe adjusting the actual exercise itself as far as the range of motion, the implement that you're using, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us here on the last edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review for 2019. You guys can get 50% off your first month of the Barbell Medicine Research Review by using the code research at checkout on the barbellmedicine.com website. And we'll be back with a whole nother series of research reviews in 2020. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.